Bible, there should be one right in front of you or nearby. Uh, We'll be in the book of Acts. Uh, We'll start at the end of chapter 4. All right. All right. I got the pleasure of preaching this morning, and we're still in our eight-week series where we are getting acquainted with the Holy Spirit as kind of laid out in the book of Acts. And uh, the last few weeks have been awesome. The first week we learned that the Holy Spirit has been promised, and he's been promised for a long time. All the way back in the Old Testament, he was promised. And then Jesus kind of builds upon that promise, reiterates it for us, that the, the Holy Spirit will come when he ascends, and when he ascended to the Father, he will be given to us. So then we learned in the second week about how he empowers us. So the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, spoiler alert, later when you die and then are resurrected to eternal life in a new body, the Holy Spirit is going to be the one to resurrect you into that new body, just as he did Jesus. And then last week, we learned about the purpose of the Holy Spirit, which is prayer-driven Jesus proclamation. That's what he is about. That's what he's been about for the last 2,000 years, and it's what he's going to be about from now on until Jesus returns. So today, what are we learning about? We're going to look at the Spirit as a person. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. And so why, why is this an issue? Why are we learning about this? Why are we turning our attention to the personhood of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's for a few reasons. Um, notably, there's a few pretty major heresies that have arisen over the centuries regarding the divinity, not just of Jesus Christ, but of the Holy Spirit. So way back in the fourth century, Uh, There was a heresy called Macedonianism, where they basically decided that the Holy Spirit was created by the Father and the Son, not co-eternal and equal with the Father and the Son. And then in modern times, we've got Jehovah's Witnesses is a, a, I mean, they have a temple just a few blocks away. Um, They teach that neither Jesus nor the Holy Spirit is God, and then the Holy Spirit is not a person, but a invisible, active force. And so for us, you know, as 21st century Americans, it's, it's easy to kind of, especially if we're Star Wars fans, to kind of get in this mindset of Holy Spirit as force, uh, not, not a person. But the truth is that he is not an ingredient that we add to our plans, but he is a necessary partner for the gospel and his plans. And it's understandable that we'd forget he is a person because the Holy Spirit doesn't really connotate a person, right? It's, it's easy to get caught up in the, the word. The word means spirit or wind or breath. But as we'll see today, he is clearly a person, not a depersonalized force. So, from the passage today, and it's going to be a bit of a read, but we're in the book of Acts, so it's awesome, it's narrative. Um, we're going to learn a few things about the Holy Spirit. 
First thing we're, we're going to learn is that the Holy Spirit is a person of God, that he's a member of the Trinity, co-equal with the Father and the Son. The second thing we're going to learn is that the Holy Spirit has a personality, meaning he's not kind of a lame character who doesn't have a dynamic uh, arc in a story. He's, he's got a lot going on. He's got a lot of attributes, characteristics, um, things that he does, things that he's good at, things that he's focusing on. And then third, we're going to learn that the Holy Spirit is personal. So he's a person of God. He has a personality and he's personal. So let's start in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And we're going to read to the end of chapter 5, just so you're, just so you're ready. All right. Now the, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, 
They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. It's interesting. Lord, may you teach us through it by your Holy Spirit, about your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we will be changed because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's kind of (laughs) interesting. And if you notice, immediately prior, uh, Luke gives us an account of Barnabas, or his other name is Joseph, who sold a field and then brought all of the money to the apostles' feet. And then we get a contrast. Ananias and Sapphira, who 
basically, like Peter said, they, they had possession of this field. They, they had the volition to sell it or not and to give proceeds from it or not. But what they ended up doing was telling them that they were going to give them all of the proceeds, but in fact they kept back part of it for their own gain, um, but pretended like they gave it all so that they would look good, <laughs> so that they would look as good as this other guy, Barnabas. And so here we find kind of a, this story is to the early church as like Genesis 3 is to the creation story. You know, God makes something happen in power. It's going along beautifully, but then sin interrupts. And it's a good reminder for us that although the stories of the early church are incredible and beautiful, sin was still there. And Satan sought to derail things very early on. So it wasn't all romance and righteousness here in the early church. But in this case, the interesting thing is that the Holy Spirit intervenes to preserve the reputation of the church. He brings about a, what's called a judgment miracle. <laughs> These two man and wife just drop down dead. And at first glance, we're like, oh my, wow, that's harsh. <laughs> That's intense, and it is. But we can ask ourselves, what, even in modern church times, what is the most hated element of the church today? Hypocrisy. And the Holy Spirit agrees, and Jesus agrees, that hypocrisy, the, the seeking to put yourself in a better light, at other people's expense, uh, to deceive others to think you're better than you actually are. Um, and early on, the Holy Spirit was very protective of the church, of the church's reputation. And so this story is preserved for us. Um, obviously, this doesn't happen, at least not in very apparent ways today. Maybe it does. <laughs> we don't really know, but not as, as much as it did in this story. And so, but from this passage, we learn a few things about the Holy Spirit. So we're going to kind of zoom out, and we're going to kind of grab other passages across the New Testament to learn a little bit more about this person who's involved in this entire story and who he is. We're going to learn that he's, like we said before, a member of the Trinity, that he has a personality, that he has plans and goals and a purpose. And also that he's personal. And that he wants to be personal to you. So, firstly, the Spirit is a person of God. So, verses 3 and 4 is, is probably the easiest place to go um, to provide an apologetic or a, a defense for the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So, looking at verse 3, it says... Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And he, and he goes on. And then later in verse 4, he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. And so it's a pretty easy one-to-one -one connection point. 
The Holy Spirit is God. You lie to the Holy Spirit, you lie to God. And so, like we said before, it, it refutes a heresy that's, that has been around for a long time. And way back in uh, the 4th century, uh, the Macedonians, the Macedonianism uh, clan was, was promoting this heresy that the Holy Spirit is not God. He's just a force. He's not, he's not fully divine. And so during the Council of Constantinople in 381 A.D., uh, they edited the Nicene Creed to include the truths about the Holy Spirit. Whereas before it was, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Now it says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. And so they encountered this heresy, and they adopted the teaching of the church to be more biblical, which is that the Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity, uh, a person of the triune Godhead. There are other passages in the New Testament that confirm the Holy Spirit's divinity. Um, one of them uh, is, a, is just kind of a quickie. Basically, Jesus, in Matthew 28, he's commanding us as his disciples to make more disciples. He says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So you all go and make disciples of all nations throughout the entire world. And then he says, baptizing them and teaching, sorry, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so there we have kind of a Trinitarian statement of Jesus Christ himself, uh, equating the Holy Spirit with himself and with the Father. And then another one is in Luke 12, where Jesus says, you know, if you, if you speak a word against me, you're going to be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. And we're not going to get into <laughs> what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, other than to say the only person who can be blasphemed is God. And so when Jesus says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he's equating the Holy Spirit with God. And so there we have the Spirit as a person of God. So what about the Spirit's personality? You know, what is he like? As opposed to being, as the Jehovah's Witnesses might say, God's invisible active force in the world, if he's a person, how do we know him? What does he do? What, what are his, what's his purpose? What, what is he like? Uh, the Oxford definition of personality is the combination of characteristics or qualities that form an individual's distinctive character. And so, looking for the Holy Spirit's personality, we can look at, okay, what are all the things he does? What are all the ways that he operates? Uh, what is his character? And in this passage, we have a couple examples. For one, in verse 4, we just read, he can be lied to. You know, can you lie to gravity? Can you lie to the wind? No, you can, you can only really lie to a person, someone who can accept or deny your lie. You can't really lie to an inanimate object or force. And then in verse 32, uh, Peter says, we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's a witness to the gospel. 
He bears witness. He testifies. He says, yes, this happened. Yes, this matters. Yes, this is for you. And imagine you're in a courtroom and and, uh, you're a lawyer and you call to the bench gravity. I call gravity to the bench. That, That won't work. You can only call a person to the bench, someone who can give testimony, someone who has a personality, who has a will, who has opinions and thoughts. And so we see that in the Holy Spirit here. And the Holy Spirit has a lot more characteristics and qualities that form his personality. You know, I'm not going to make you turn to all these places, but in John 14, 15, and 16, when Jesus lays out the fact that he's going to ascend to the Father and give the Holy Spirit, you know, he says, it's better that I go away so that the Holy Spirit can come to you. And then every time he refers to the Holy Spirit, he refers to him in a masculine uh, pronoun. So he gives him a person identifier. He doesn't say it. He says he. You know, he will teach you. He will guide you. He will convict the world. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have commanded you. And so that's where you find his, his sort of personhood. And then uh, in Second Peter, uh, Peter says that the Holy Spirit was the one who wrote Scripture. And we're going to look at that a little more closely next week, that the Holy Spirit was the one from Genesis to Revelation that inspired the writing down of God's word. And then, like we said, he convicts of sin in John 16. He teaches in John 16. He has a will in 1 Corinthians 12. And 1 Corinthians 12 is a great place to learn about the Spirit because that's one of the lists of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to his people. And in that chapter, uh, Paul says, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to anyone that he wills. And so he has a will. So that's part of his personality. He calls. This is probably one of my favorite ones, and we'll look at this a little bit further when we look at how the Holy Spirit leads and guides the church. But in Acts 13, too, there's a bunch of Christians worshiping in Antioch, And it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So he calls. He calls individual people. He calls you. He's a person. He gives gifts. He sends. One of the most beautiful attributes of the Holy Spirit is that he prays for us. You know, Paul in Romans 8 He's saying that a lot of times we just don't know how to pray. And my dad mentioned last week that a lot of times or sometimes all we can do is groan inwardly. You know, I don't have the words to pray for this specific situation today. And then he says, that's okay. You do that. And while you're doing that, the Holy Spirit's going to pray for you. How beautiful is that? So that he intercedes for prayer or in prayer for believers And then in Ephesians, we learned just a month or so ago, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. You know, he he can be made to grieve. Only a person can grieve, not a force. So last week, we talked about the Spirit's purpose, which is to empower the prayerful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in so doing, build his church, which is Jesus' body, which is Jesus' bride, which is also the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that's the Holy Spirit's purpose. 
Notice how Jesus-centered the Holy Spirit is. You know, the first week my dad mentioned that the Holy Spirit is mentioned 57 times in the book of Acts. Jesus is mentioned 80. The Holy Spirit is all about Jesus. So all that he does, all that he is, is to glorify Jesus and to make us more like Jesus. And as a side note, we don't find anyone in Scripture praying directly to the Holy Spirit, which is kind of interesting. You know, we, we see people praying primarily to God the Father, but also to Jesus. But who gives the Holy Spirit? God the Father and Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't seek glory for himself. His priority is to propagate the gospel in the world and in our hearts. But we do find him praying for us and empowering our prayers to God. He is the very presence of God with us, in us, for us. I love that. From, from the earliest issue, which was Genesis 3, back when God used to take walks with Adam and Eve in the garden, but then sin interrupted that relationship. From that point on, God has been seeking and pursuing a way to be with us. That's been his goal the whole time. You look at the tabernacle for Israel, you look at the temple, and then you look at how we are now the temple of the living God. The whole time it's just been God wanting to be with us. So we see him as a person of God, as someone with a personality, and lastly, he's personal. So our goal in studying about the Holy Spirit, of learning about the Holy Spirit, of, uh, you know, meditating on who he is, it need not stop there. It can move on to experiencing him personally. You know, Scripture is clear that the Spirit is for us, like you. Back in chapter 2, go ahead and turn and look. In chapter 2, verse 38 and 39, Peter says, this is kind of a, a simple A, B, C of how we got the Spirit. He says, Peter said to them, repent, which means change your mind, move a different direction, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The giving of the Holy Spirit is simply God going, I want to be with you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to be close to you. And if we're in Christ, then the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And, that if we, and also, if we ask the Father, he will give the Holy Spirit to us. Look how personal the Spirit was for Peter in this passage. You know, in the intense part where Ananias brings the lie, brings the, pro the supposed full proceeds of the sale of this land to Peter, Peter immediately knows something's up. Who told him that? How did he know that? That was a word of knowledge, something that the Holy Spirit just said, this, this is not. This is not good. You need to call this out. This is, this is going to affect my church. And so 
Peter just stated it because the Holy Spirit told him. And that thing that happened, the word of knowledge, something Peter shouldn't have known but known, that's actually something listed in 1 Corinthians 12 as one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which is words of knowledge. You know, the Holy Spirit telling you something and you can take that and take it to the bank. And depending on the situation, bring it up to a person or, or what have you. Whatever he's leading you to do with that information. And then later, uh, when Peter and the, the rest of the apostles are in front of this body of uh, officials, uh, in verses 29 through 32, Peter is responding to these accusations. And the cool thing about this specific passage is, this is something Jesus promised would happen. Back in uh, Luke chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it for you. Uh, Jesus basically told them this exact situation would happen and what to do. He said, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so here we find Later on, when Jesus has ascended to the Father and there the, the church has hit the ground running, Peter and the apostles are brought before the rulers and the authorities and they said, stop that or else Peter was able to receive what to say in that hour. In verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And so the Holy Spirit gave Peter a simple but very clear explanation of the gospel. And then... We'll see what happens. <laughs> but what happened was they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. And so, <laughs> thankfully, the Holy Spirit is also the comforter. <laughs> so whatever he leads you to do, he's going to be with you, whatever the uh, result. And in this case, the worst that happened was they were beaten. But who wants to be beaten? <laughs> but that's what happened. And as we saw last week, too, the persecution came hand in hand. And that was one of the things Jesus promised as well. And so, Jesus, when he promises the Holy Spirit, he calls him by a name. The name is the parakletos. And it's a cool word. He uses it multiple times in John 14, 15, and 16. And there's a lot of different um, translations of what that word means. But a bunch of them kind of add up to one thing. So, one of, the, one of them, it could be comforter. Another is helper. Another is advocate. Another is counselor. You know, all these words together add up to someone who is right there at your side, someone powerful enough to change you and yet gentle enough to comfort you. He's our comforter, our helper. I need help. <laughs> There's someone for that. 
You know, I need someone who has my back. The Holy Spirit's there. It's beautiful. And one of the jobs that the Holy Spirit takes care of for us is conviction of sin. And this is such good news. That the Holy Spirit is God's presence with us, and yet when we fail, when we mess up, when we do something that we wish we didn't do or trying not to do, and we're feeling the weight of that, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave at that moment. He actually meets us at that moment. And what he does is not accuse He does not condemn, he convicts, which is a, it's not a further burdening, it's a lifting, it's a, hey, I know that, that you want to be like Jesus, and I am going to remind you of how you can, in the way that only he can. He doesn't condemn, you know, he doesn't say, you suck. He says, there's forgiveness for this, that thing that you feel trapped in, that you feel like you're doing over and over again. I can empower you to live otherwise. And the cool thing is the conviction leads somewhere. (laughs) And where it leads is uh, what Paul calls the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, he lists out all the ways that the Holy Spirit leads us to act Basically, all the values, the values of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all these things we wish we had more of, that is the Holy Spirit's agenda for you. And conviction and bearing fruit are, they go hand in hand. It's awesome. So he convicts us, he bears fruit in our lives. And really what this is, and Paul kind of further extrapolates on this, is what we're experiencing as believers in Jesus who have the Holy Spirit, what we're experiencing is a taste. It's a, it's sort of a, a, he calls it a down payment of our inheritance. The fact that we get to taste this intimacy with God. That's what the Holy Spirit is. It's, it's, he's, he provides that a taste of what's to come. You know, a, a bunch of us were at a wedding last night, and it was so beautiful. And it, weddings kind of provide a, a kind of a glimpse of, of the future that we have with Jesus. You know, if you know Jesus, you will be his bride. And so what the Holy Spirit is, it's, it's that taste of intimacy that we're all longing for. And we're going to get more of, but for now, that's what we have. And it's powerful. And he he loves us. Uh, how Paul describes the Holy Spirit in Romans 5 is that it's because of the Holy Spirit that we can experience the love of God. You know, he says, the love of God which has been poured out into your hearts through his Spirit that he has given you. So it's only because of the Holy Spirit that we can even experience to actually know, not just like read Romans 8, like, okay, yeah just like head knowledge, but no, like know it. You know God loves you, and that's because of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, he equips us. He, 
He provides what we need to do what he wants us to do, that he's calling us to do, that we have a desire and a God-given passion to do. I mentioned uh, 1 Corinthians 12, but there's also Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4 that describe the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But none of these lists is exhaustive. You know, it's not meant to be, these are the only things that the Spirit can empower you to do. There's a lot of them, and they're all really cool. And I encourage you to look at them and, and study them and, and figure out what, what ones you're drawn to. You know, whether it's hospitality or service or teaching or leading or serving, I already said that, uh, and prophecy and all these amazing gifts. But the purpose of these gifts is to use them. And it's not just to use them on your own, hanging out, I'm super powerful, got the Holy Spirit. It's to use them in the context of this body of believers. This is called a local church. Capitol Hill, Seattle, Calvary the Hill. We get to use our gifts to build each other up in Jesus Christ. But not only the local church, we get to use those gifts to promote and empower the global church. You know, whether it's giving to missionaries. You know, giving is a, a spiritual gift. Uh, or it's teaching or, or traveling and, and actually ministering the gospel. But not just those. Also, your vocation. The Spirit empowers you for your vocation, whatever that is. Because we're all missionaries and ambassadors of the kingdom of God wherever we are. So whether you're in a tech company or a uh, NGO or a nonprofit or work from home or a stay-at-home mom, doesn't matter. The Spirit empowers you for that vocation too. Gosh, he's awesome, right? And he, we'll learn in chapter 8 that, you know, he can't be bought. A guy, a guy named Simon the sorcerer tries to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter. <laughs> Peter's like, oh no, oh no. Yeah, not good. Don't try to buy the Holy Spirit. He can't be bought. He can't be earned. And, you know, if, if you're thirsty for help, if you're thirsty for comfort, for counsel, for someone powerful enough to truly and completely have your back, your advocate, the Holy Spirit's for you. And to receive his Spirit, the only thing you need do is recognize that you both desperately need him and don't deserve him. Those are the only prerequisites. So if you lay hold of Jesus Christ as your, like Peter says, your leader and savior. Leader, meaning you're, you're a person in need of someone to guide you. Meaning that you no longer want to be the God of your own life. That you're ready to submit your life to someone who really knows what they're doing. Not just that, but a savior. You know, someone who's a sinner in need of a savior. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner in order to receive a savior. And the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from the sin that we commit and the sin that's committed against us. The gospel is that powerful. So when we accept the leadership, the lordship of Jesus, and accept his saving work for us, then says right there in Acts 2 that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the living God. 
and he'll come, and he'll be with you for the rest of your life until you meet God face to face. So for tho- that's for those who don't have him yet, but for those who do have him already, who know Jesus, you know, do you want to be in tune with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit? Those are all names given for the Holy Spirit. Do you want to be in tune with him every day? Here's a little tip. Every morning when you wake up, make time to be with God. And in that time, acknowledge your need for him and ask him to fill you with his spirit in order to empower you to walk in his purposes, both for you and for all the people you touch that day. You have no idea what story God is writing of someone who you're going to encounter on any given day. Um, you know, Paul talks about how with evangelism and spreading the good news of Jesus, we're all like playing a part. So the whole church is playing a part, planting seeds, watering them, uh, inviting someone to church, telling someone about a, all these little things that, that are said and, and done alongside someone in their journey towards Jesus. None of us gets to take the credit because you have no idea when someone is going to actually be harvested for eternal life, right? But the cool thing is that the Holy Spirit is the one writing that story for each of those people. And so when we go forth in our day, whether it's just a normal day, Monday, or it's a weekend or whatever, we can say, God, please, by your Holy Spirit, empower me to be able to participate in your purpose. And it's not just about us. In fact, it's not about us at all. It's about his purpose. What is he, how does he want to use me on any given day? And I promise you that if you do that for long enough, if you, if you acknowledge your need and ask God to, to lead you and guide you and fill you with his spirit, you will notice and experience pretty crazy things. You'll participate in the, the scooting someone further towards Jesus or even all the way or just loving someone in Jesus' name, of course. We have the best God, who in Jesus Christ found a way to be close to us. He loves to be close with us. And that's been his agenda since the beginning. Let's pray.